This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. It's 8.25 p.m. at an overcrowded movie theater in London, England. And you're listening to Night Call. Hello and welcome to Night Call, a call-in show for our dystopian reality. My name is Emily Yoshida and I am joined as always by Molly Lambert and Tess Lynch. Uh, hey guys, have you seen Tenet yet? Have you gone to your <laughs> local movie theater and watched Tenet? Oh yeah, we all piled in the car and then just uh, jammed ourselves. Yeah. With our friend Tom, TC. Yeah, uh, so... Tom Cruise, who is a known maniac and also just loves the movies, loves the industry that has done so much for him. I mean, who wouldn't if you were Tom Cruise? Um, put out a little bit of propaganda this week, urging filmgoers to take their lives into their hands and go see Tenet on the big screen. Um, and he posted this very bizarre video with the, <laughs> with the typically like, bombastic t- tweet accompanying it says big movie big screen loved it <laughs> i hate him <laughs> so much <laughs> he's just like in his he's in like one of these full-on neoprene masks 
with like the vent that I think you're not supposed to have. Yeah, those I, are bad. I'm not sure. I don't know the latest on mask do's and don'ts. Those have the vent uh, just sprays your germs out. Oh, okay. Um, people think the vent is high tech and that it's somehow protecting you more, but actually the vent is for masks that are for forest fires and stuff. And so it's meant to spray your germs out and breathe, breathe in only the good air, but people keep using them now and it's bad. Uh, yeah. So Tom Cruise is spraying his, well, he's got special germs, I'm sure. His germs are, are thetan free, uh, so it's okay. But he, yeah, it's a very bizarre video. He sits in like a crowded theater and nobody seems to acknowledge the fact that Tom Cruise is sitting next to them at the theater. And then there's just like a kind of fuzzy handheld camera thing of like the opening title of Tenet. And then it's like, it's over. And he's like, it was great. I loved it. Um, no, de- no further details. We still can't tell what Tenet is here in the United States. But I love that Tom Cruise is the person who's allowed to do a camera version of Tenet. Right. He's allowed to just film the screen. Um, but also, I think it was a Mission Impossible cast and crew screening. Oh, okay. That, that you know, kind of makes a little more sense. That's why people weren't like, Tom Cruise. Although he did show, like, some tweens being like, oh, when he drove by. Right, when he's in the car in his mask. And then somebody was like, they must think he's somebody else. <laughs> but he, yeah, he uh, he's making a bit, you know, he's it, it's clearly like a thing of like, I'm wearing a mask so I can go to the movie theater and therefore you should too. You have nothing to be afraid of but fear itself. And in the meantime, I, I yeah, like nobody's going to be seen I don't think people are going to be seeing Tenet in the United States at least I think he was in England for that but um I know that a lot this has been like a big moral issue for critics the AV club wrote about it recently didn't they I think so um I mean there are reviews that are out because like critics for the most part are getting to go to distanced reviews where you're just in a big theater with like a handful of people and it's you know relatively safer I guess although I don't know if I was still a critic right now I don't know if I'd be doing that but you know that there's an there's one of the first reviews I saw um was on consequence of sound uh written by uh, Robert Daniels and he made sure to have a note at the bottom that was like listen this is the situation in which I watched this movie your own situation is probably not going to be like mine so please consider that and like this is by no means an endorsement to go out and see this movie even though his review of it was also pretty middling as a lot of them have been surprisingly like it's very funny cuz right now like with Tenet coming out and everything the the real Nolan heads are very loud and proud out on the internet. And so it's interesting to see how much the reviews have actually been kind of negative for this one. And I don't know if that's sort of tinged by the whole COVID issue or if it's just a bad movie, um, probably a combination of both, but um, yeah, it's super interesting. I, I like that Tenet is like this Schrodinger's cat of <laughs> movies that we still like what could it be who knows well it's also like i've heard people calling it christopher nolan schadenfreude yeah or like christopher nolan's hubris yeah. um because yeah he was so adamant and and warner brothers was so adamant that this movie had to be shown in theaters on a big screen and would not 
possibly ever go to VOD or be uh, in drive-ins. And now I think they maybe are going to let it go to drive-ins, but it has to also be showing in theaters. Ugh, it's so... It makes me so mad. I think what I what I was referencing earlier, and I should clarify, is that the AV Club wrote about um, the ethics of covering films that are not going directly to VOD or where if you're a critic and you do get, like Emily said, um, a kind of more socially distanced viewing of it, is it ethical to say, like, this movie's great, go see it when the general public is going to see it in really different circumstances? But it's hard not to hold all of this against Tenet. I really didn't have... Like, I I probably would have seen Tenet if it had been released on VOD, whatever, two months ago. I mean, when did this publicity thing start with Tenet? It feels like it's been going on for a hundred years. Yeah, for half of the the quarantine. (laughs) It was like a running joke because they kept pushing back the the opening date, but the posters always were like, only in theaters. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so there's still posters up that are like opening like August, whatever, that it did not actually open here. And like I, I understand that like, you know not all filmmakers are like this. Some are, some aren't. It's completely within their rights to be like the kind of person who's like, no, my movie needs to be seen in a theater. Like I am that kind of filmmaker. That is like a legit. It's art. There's no right or wrong way to 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 want your art to be out there. Like you can have your own preference. This is all value free. But in this specific circumstance that we find ourselves in, I think the inflexibility on that part. I mean, it really is like, okay, if you really are only supposed to see this movie in theaters, then we have to wait to put it out. Like, it, if it's worth that much to you, then then you should probably just delay it until it actually is safe. Because I understand, like, if you've worked so hard on something and you really, you know, you have made something that is made for a big screen experience, which I think that there is such a thing, um, and even though I'm not the biggest Nolan fan in the world, I understand that that's the way he approaches his movies and it's effective. And so that's fine. It's just that, like you have to have some flexibility or like understand that we're not working in regular times right now. I don't know if he just isn't aware of that because he like doesn't have a cell phone or what, but <laughs> uh, he's a very special man, but yeah, it's it's wild. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're like, people should go see my movie, and if they die, they die. Yeah, I mean, it, or it's like, it's just going to be me and Tom Cruise watching this movie and nobody else. Then it's like, okay, then that's, uh, that's very exclusive art then that you have made. <laughs> yeah, I was doing jokes about like the virgin tenet and the Chad, Bill and Ted Save the World. Because <laughs> Bill and Ted Save the World just came out yesterday on VOD. Of course. Uh, and it, people liked it. People said it's it's good and funny. And uh, they were like, maybe people will start making more like medium budget comedies again, because everything can't be Tenet now. I wonder, I, I really wonder, like, once we start, start to get into the stuff that was made during COVID, and then is released during COVID, like what that's good, like what projects that works out best for, because man, oh man, the the production guidelines for shooting in COVID uh, really rule out a lot of kinds of content. So <laughs> um, we'll see about that. While we are not going to movie theaters, we have decided to take a little ride with Nexium 
for HBO's The, the Vow. Like we've yeah. joined the cult, even though it's been shut down. We've we're yes, <laughs> we've taken the vow. I finished the first up. Ep- we'll probably be talking about this more on the podcast in coming episodes. So if you are also watching The Vow, please give us a night call at two four zero four six night and let us know what you think. But uh, I, when I finished watching the first episode last night, I was so disturbed by. If that were the end of the story, I would have joined Nexium. <laughs> no question. It, it was so appealing to me. I mean, like all the cult things we watched, all the documentaries we ever watched about cults, there's definitely, or, you know, weird communes that take a turn. Um, we've always said it's like there, it takes a while to get to the point where you're like, oh, this is bad. Right. And But that's how they get you. They don't start off being scary. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is pretty scary. Yeah. it. The first episode is really like the lobster in the pot, you know, where they're turning up the temperature extremely gradually because there is something about how Nexium appears to be a very good-natured self-help group in the beginning. Like when you're introduced to it, it seems like the people who are being interviewed about it are are really like relatable kind of, you know, they're not like, necessarily even down on their luck and like feeling like broken shells. It's just that they feel like they could be doing a little bit better, a little bit better than they're doing and artistically and professionally and in their love lives. It's like, I just feel like, you know, I want more joy in my life. And then you see the gatherings, you know, which also are strange to watch those kind of things under quarantine because there's so much hugging and like putting sashes on each other and stuff. So it seems like it's from a different time, uh, which it is. But yeah, I mean, I I came to Nexium late. We've talked about Nexium on the podcast before, and we know how dangerous and bonkers it became. But, uh, dude, it seemed it seemed like a really great self help group to me in episode one. I think I haven't watched the Val yet. I plan on doing it this week. I have like I listened to one of I think several podcasts about Nexium, uh, maybe a year or two ago, and I. I think one of the things I did come away from it with is just like that there's again like sucks to be an actress <laughs> to have the specific insecurities and needs of an actress because <laughs> that seemed to be really like fundamental to a lot of the people who got brought into it and ultimately had like you know leadership roles in it is that there's it felt very um parallel to the sorts of things that you the sorts of psychological dynamics that are at play when you are in a cast or in a theater company or something like that so um yeah I'm really interested to see the the series oh man it's very good uh and disturbing yeah I mean I felt very strongly that this entire uh, religion, whatever you want to call it cult group it seemed very much just like a knockoff of Scientology yeah, yeah, similar. It has less of a sci-fi element to it and more of a, like, human nature kind of thing, yeah. you know? But the needs that it claims to address, I think, that's that's the cross. It's like if you have, you're starting with the same kinds of people with the same kinds of problems, and some people want the L. Ron Hubbard space aliens route, and some people want something that feels more like a, you know, like a support group plus, you know? Yeah. I think the thing that felt Scientology-y about it to me was like the having different words for everything, the, all the made up words. There's a thing, the main fundamental thing is uh, integrating yourself. 
that you have parts of yourself that are disintegrated and you have to work on yourself to integrate them. Oh man, all of myself is disintegrating right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the things that I, I mean, I felt that I could have so easily been drawn in because they have what is what they're called limiting mindsets, I think. Um, So you write down things that you think you know about yourself, like I'm not a morning person. Limiting beliefs. Limiting beliefs. Thank you. Um, LBs. And then LBs. You got to drop those LBs. (laughs) (laughs) But I was kind of like, I mean, and also, of course, um, they had someone who was afraid to drive on the freeway featured and I was like oh no now I'm now I really want to join this cult but (laughs) not not for long I'm sure by episode two I'll be back out um well yeah we should uh we should keep watching I'm I I need to start watching and if you are watching the vow right now uh give us a night call and let us know what you think one two four oh four six night we'll we'll revisit this uh next week or a week after and yeah can't wait bring on the branding why don't we take a break and when we come back we'll have tales of credum are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh then it's time for an upgrade with the power of clorox sentiva with an uplifting scent that smells like coconut clorox sentiva gives you powerful clean like clorox but a feeling like being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 
tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula, berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to Night Call. We'd like to take a night call, a couple of night calls, with some opposing views about a little substance called Kratom. This is some point-counterpoint Kratom edition. Sorry, Kratom. Hey y'all, my name is Jamie, a huge fan of the pod, and when I saw y'all were talking about Kratom, I got so excited and immediately had to call in. Um, I have been using it off and on for about three years now, and it's been a great help to me. I have chronic back pain from scoliosis and pretty bad anxiety, and it's helped alleviate pretty much all of these symptoms. However, I have had pushback from my psychiatrist who is against me being on any kind of drugs, but I don't think the medical community has enough data to be pushing one way or the other. I love Kratom personally, and I think it's been extremely helpful to me, and I think it's ridiculous for the government to try to classify this as a Schedule One drug, just based off the data that's already come out about it from users like me. Um, anyway, that's my experience, and thank you for talking about this. I swear nobody is, and I've been using it for so long. Um, anyway, thank you. Bye. All right, let's uh, let's take another Kratom call just for balance. Hey, Night Call. Uh, my name is John. I'm from Florida in the panhandle of Florida. Um, I was just listening to your episode about Kratom. Um, I wanted to share you my experience with you. So I started taking it. I was a really bad alcoholic. And um, when I started taking Kratom, the cravings for alcohol totally disappeared. And I was able to totally kick that habit and it was very it was a very bad habit um so in that sense it was a miracle cure um i didn't have much dts or anything so it wasn't like it took care of me physically it was it was just mentally but because of that as a result i got hooked on kratom which is something that's totally possible and a lot of the proponents of legalization or the you know letting people use it on their own without a doctor is they're not going to tell you that you can get severely addicted to it just like you can an opioid or a cigarette. Um, the withdrawals are pretty much the same analogous to opioid withdrawals. Um, restless legs at first and then aching all over the body, vomiting, diarrhea, things like that. So I, effectively I, I traded one addiction that was killing me for one that is most certainly not, but it's still something I have to do every day. It's been six years. I have to take it every six hours or so. There have been a couple times when I've been off it with the help of a psychiatrist to um, 
you know, stepping it down, um, stepping down the tolerance and finally stepping off. And of course, because I have an addictive personality, shortly thereafter started it again. But I'm right now in the process of uh, hopefully coming down with the help of my girlfriend and my family for the last time. It was something that I was very ashamed of for a very long time, and I was able to ask for the help I need. Is Kratom good? Yes. Um, Should people be taking Kratom on their own? Should it be sold in gas stations? I don't know. I think it should be something that a professional can prescribe to you and help you uh, kick the really bad addictions you have. Um, From what I understand, it's not hard on the body. It doesn't make you high in the way that opioids do. It doesn't impair your judgment or anything. It's more of a body feeling. Um, It definitely needs to be researched. Thank you for talking about this. This is my daily existence, and so it's good to hear other people talking about it. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, both of those calls, we actually got a ton of feedback. Um, I missed the conversation last week. I was really sorry to miss it, but we we got a ton of calls and emails um, and we were very grateful to listen to and, and read all of yeah. them. Yeah. So full disclosure, since the last episode, I have actually tried Kratom for myself <gasps> I tried I tried a varietal called you guys will be very pleased to know about this called Vampire Kratom um, <laughs> that, and I, I would totally agree with what the second caller said it's not it doesn't get you high it is completely a body feeling in a way that's kind of strange like it does it is like an opioid-esque body feeling I have a lot of shoulder and back pain naturally all the time. And it just went away in a way that like even just the absence of that pain was enough to make me feel like maybe I was high because I was like, oh, I have no pain in my body. This is incredible. Um, But I was expecting to be able to like fall asleep after that because I've sometimes have had trouble recently falling asleep and it didn't help with that at all for me. I wasn't like woozy or whatever. It was just a pleasant body feeling. But I can see the... I can totally see how that could be addictive just because it's nice to not feel pain. And it's like weirdly workable. Like I was having very lucid conversations with people while I was on it. So it, yeah, it's, it's some, it doesn't feel that disruptive to your life. It's not like being on, on oxycodone or whatever. Um, yeah. I, yeah, it was, it was interesting. (laughs) I mean, it's interesting to know that you can get withdrawals from it, even if it doesn't feel like anything. Uh, Yeah, it's, uh, so it's apparently the plant is related to the coffee plant. So I think that in a similar way that if you kind of quit, if you're a big coffee drinker and you quit coffee cold turkey, that can be kind of difficult. I think that might be a little bit analogous to it. But I, I do think the second caller is right in that like yeah if you have an addictive personality like I for the most part don't think that I do so I am not like out to get a big shipment of Kratom anytime soon um but if you know that about yourself then yeah maybe this is something to steer clear of but um definitely more research should be done into it I mean it seems sort of like an oversight that it hasn't been that call also seemed like sort of a good argument against like using it to get off opiates because it essentially sounds like you're just transferring into a different addictive substance that you then have to get off. 
I think that the plus side, why people are proponents of it, is that, yes, it's still, you can still have a dependency on it. You're just less likely to die from it. So that's sort of the one upside there. Did you have any side effects from it? Because some of the feedback that we got, people had really wide ranges of like different kinds of side effects from really intense constipation. One person said like, I'll, I can't do it anymore because it was just so awful. Um, hmm. Other people were such huge fans. But when you look into the side effects that are listed, um, they they have such a wide range from like hair loss to psychosis. Um, and obviously that's a great reason for it to be tested and yeah. looked into further because you wonder like is that something to do with the different strains or just a different reaction or an interaction I think the way that you prepare it has a lot to do with that my friend who does it regularly made a kind of brew of it for me that's a little more um, like time consuming than just sort of boiling it with water and taking it like a tea making a sludge of it basically um, I guess the solids in it are a lot of what causes people to feel upset stomach um, or have other digestive tract uh, issues with it. So I, I took something that was pretty filtered and um, and pretty smooth and easy to to drink. Uh, you had the top shelf kratom. I did. I got that top shelf that that uh, yeah, Catherine Deneuve and the Hunger Vampire kratom. <laughs> uh, I didn't have any other side effects other than that, which is surprising. Because I get really nauseous off of opiates. Like if I'm on uh, Vicodin or whatever, for whatever reason, I tend to get pretty, pretty sick. Um, so that was my own personal experience. But it seems like the types of Kratom vary wild, wildly. Um, and people's own tolerance and, you know, compatibility with it varies widely. So, Yeah. I don't know if it's just because we were talking about it um, or if it is just becoming more widespread, but I saw my first sign for it in the Valley a couple days ago at a smoke shop. Yeah. Uh, How is it being advertised? Well, it was like um, like a sandwich board out front, just like, here's all the things we have in this smoke shop. And it was like CBD, Kratom, like vapes or whatever. Yeah, so I Kava. Think, it's another Didn't say Kava. Um, I was just surprised that Kratom was like the the headliner. Hmm. I th- maybe it was the second headliner. I'm glad we got so many calls about it. Like it does feel like a thing. Like I never hear anybody talking about it either. It's just something that I always register if I'm like not in New York or LA that it is around. Um, like it was around in Florida last time I was in Florida. And um, yeah, it's it feels kind of semi semi regional or. It's it's not a coastal elite drug, we'll say. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, anyway, thanks for your calls everybody. That was great. Yeah, give us more calls about kratom and other other legal like cures. I'm Mind-altering substances that yeah, are not for, not just for coastal elites. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you've had bad experiences with Kratom, we would also like to hear about them. We are now the Kratom Research Council. Yeah, apparently we're doing the work that nobody else will do. Thank you, Emily, for, for actually venturing out in the field there. <laughs> Why is God. it called Vampire, this one? I have no idea. I have no idea. Uh, yeah, it beats me. I, I could look into it, but I didn't make the order, so I have no idea. <laughs> so... After we're all done um, going to a crowded movie theater to watch Tenet, 
how about we all hook into our halo devices and uh, check in our, on our emotions and uh, body fat percentages and feed that information to Amazon. Does that sound like a future we all want? Oh my God. <laughs> halo. Uh, yeah. Uh, Amazon, uh, Amazon uh, announced that it's going to release this device called a halo, which is their kind of health and fitness body tracker type device um, that has the added benefit of doing a full 3D body scan on you to detect your body fat content and also scan you for your emotional or monitor your um, your emotions over the day, I guess through the tone of your voice. There's a story about this on The Verge. Dieter Bond, my former colleague, wrote about it. Um, about this this release, which I think it's not it's not out yet, but when when was it going? When are they planning on releasing it later this year? I don't know. Hopefully, never. Hopefully, never. Hopefully, they think about this. My main issue. So, I guess um, reading about this on the Verge, the good news is there is some good news um, that it doesn't use GPS or Wi-Fi tracking, and that tone. And I think the body, the tone is what monitors your tone of voice. Body is the 3D scan that monitors your body fat. Tone is opt in and you train it to get used to your voice by reading text back to it. And then it will occasionally listen to you um, like intermittently, not on a schedule. And it will report back on your emotional state. For me, tone is way more troubling than uh, body because also I'm like, who actually wants to know? You know what I mean? Like, who wants to know? Who wants to know how often you get upset? You kind of do know how often you get upset. It just seems like such traumatic information for a wearable tracker to deliver to you. Like, you're depressed. You're really angry. And it's also, you know, we don't know who is eventually going to be paying for this information and having access to it and knowing you know, what your emotion levels are on your halo on any given day and like whether or not that could be used as justification for law enforcement to do X, Y, or Z to you because you were angry on your halo. I mean, there is so, if you just think like five steps ahead for what this technology could be used for, it starts to get very, very dystopian very quickly. And, you know, I mean, I think I haven't seen anybody say anything positive about this, but that doesn't mean like... Jeff Bezos is now like what he's uh, he's like a double billionaire. He's a double hundred. He's 200. He has 200 billion dollars. Is that right? Um, He doesn't like who cares? He can he can, you know, make this a product that people he can he he did it with, with Alexa already. Like, that's the thing that everybody feels like they need now, even though I, I don't personally. I think that if you have Alexa in your house, you are an insane person. Uh, but And I, I and I include a lot of friends of mine in this. Um, but yeah, there's no, there's like public opinion doesn't matter. Like, this will just be a part of our lives. Like, Amazon is far reaching enough. This is just going to be a part of our lives. Um, yeah. And it's... It- they're, they're saying all the right things about how easy it is to delete this data and to control the data and that they're not going to sell it. The problem is that there's no reason to trust Amazon at no. all, you know, which is something no. that people are always slow to learn. But also, I mean, I'm kind of unsure about how it, I know that it's like linked to your phone and that it's a wearable, but if it's recording you intermittently, how can it avoid recording other people around you as well? Um, and again, like we've, we talked about with the Bluetooth proximity and stuff like that, the way that 
you could piece together things and claim that you're assisting in solving a crime or whatever with a randomly picked up source of dialogue that also could be someone else talking like it, mm-hmm. the, the rabbit hole is so deep with this particular feature that you can just think of like a myriad of ways that this could be horribly and criminally misused yeah i i had a problem like i i think that wearable tech is a um kind of a a, a rubicon that that we crossed a while ago with um with the Apple watch. And I was like super spooked out by the Apple watch when that came out, just because I think anything that is on your person and meant to be on your person at all times like that, that feels like voluntarily like narking on yourself, regardless of what the thing is that it does. And that's with Apple that has, as far as the big tech companies go, Apple is pretty good as, as far as like information security and keeping your data private. Like, Like that's not the business that they're in. So but even still, you know, that's still on a Wi-Fi signal that's still or, you know, that's still Bluetooth connected to your phone or whatever. Like it's not it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's not an analog watch. And when Apple or when Amazon is making a version of that, that is like so much more invasive <laughs> when you're talking about emotions and stuff. I absolutely do not trust Amazon with any of my data, let alone my emotional data. <laughs> like, <laughs> I sincerely doubt that it works um, because as Meredith Whitaker, who we had on recently, demonstrated, uh, all, all of that kind of like, we're going to use tech to read your emotions stuff is largely vaporware bullshit. Uh, it's like a mood ring. Yeah. I mean... I don't know. It's also it capitalizes. I think that the reason that this is being pushed out now is recently there was discussion about how the Fitbit might be able to um, basically diagnose coronavirus or give you a, a some kind of a clue if you're exhibiting symptoms by monitoring heart rate changes and stuff. But it kind of just seems also to exploit like a heightened sense of hypochondria and paranoia that's oh, very yeah. understandable for people to have right now. Uh, but it's weird to tack on tone because again I can't understand how that benefits a person who's experiencing emotions and like I guess it serves as a mirror but as Molly pointed out it's being interpreted by AI that is notoriously bad at deciphering human emotions at all so you could be told that you're you know a very like depressed or angry person when maybe that's just a flaw yeah like and that's that's completely aside from yeah completely aside from the data privacy or anything it's like once you put something in the mix that you're you are essentially like performing for you know you have an audience in the form of this halo device that kind of changes your entire relationship to yourself and your emotions and like makes you think about them in a way that maybe is not completely natural like healthy uh you know it, those are all values that vary from person to person but still like it's just I don't yeah who would want that in their lives <laughs> here here at night call we only endorse one form of regulating your emotions and that is astrology yes <laughs> the the one true therapy instead of an emotion monitor just read some astrology and it'll tell you what mood you're in today and then you know I thought it was interesting the performative, like performing emotion for your for your wearable is interesting because yeah. it I mean, we all had differing opinions about the episode, um, the Black Mirror episode Nosedive. But it reminds me a lot of that where it becomes kind of like what um, you're you're almost like 
whether or not they're selling your data, it seems like a way to practice being a false version of yourself. Yes. And and also that that could be super exploited for like brand. I mean, it's almost yeah. like you're you're becoming your own brand. You're losing any kind of depth and just like flattening yourself into like a happy brand. Yeah, because like who knows what could be used against you if your data shows that you are sad and miserable all the time. Like... <laughs> Who knows what's yep. going to get marketed to you because of that? Who knows like how you're going to be profiled in any kind of like police database? You know, who, it's all oh, it's such a bad idea. Oh my god, I cannot believe yeah. that this is anywhere close to legal. <laughs> it feels like the yeah, it feels like the beginning of like pre-crime. It's total yeah, it's uh, it's very Minority Report. Um, speaking of TC, <laughs> Tom friend. Cruise pal. <laughs> I'm going to call him that forever now. Tom friend Cruise pal. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by our guest this week, Catherine Spires, to talk about food, community fridges, and all sorts of fun stuff. So stay tuned for that. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat 
balancing glucose levels and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by Brain MD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from Brain MD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back. We are now joined by Catherine Spires, a food and culture journalist who hosts a food history podcast called Smart Mouth and edits a newsletter on the same topic at smartmouth.substack.com. Welcome, Catherine, to the podcast. How are you today? I'm so good. Thank you so much for having me. We are so excited to have you. I just started reading the Smart Mouth uh, newsletter after listening to the podcast, and it's so good. Thank you. That's really nice of you to say. I I do like that it has other writers, not just me, so I can be like, you don't have to listen to me more. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's nice to kind of spread it around. And you have some really good contributors. There was one um, about uh, Midwestern ice creams that was great. I think that was by Ellen, or no, the Ellen Canner one was um, the New Orleans Fritter. Yes, the fritter that's like Ooh. actually more historically important than the beignet, but never gets talked about. Maybe because it's harder to make because it's made with rice. Yeah, what it what is it called? A a coloss? A kala. A kala. Yeah. Nice. I, honestly, I'm probably mispronouncing it, and you'll get all your Louisiana listeners irate. But <laughs> I think it's spelled C A L A. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, how did you decide to start Smart Mouth? Because you were formerly the food editor at LA Weekly. Yeah, right. And then we all got fired. And then I was like, well, here's the thing about being a journalist. Like having a full-time job kind of means nothing. So, and also doesn't pay anything. So I might as well have nothing and be paid nothing on my own terms. We, and, we follow this model as well. Yeah, yeah, you guys get it. Exactly. <laughs> so that's just what I'm doing with food stuff. Um, yeah, it's I. it's been really nice, like during quarantine, I think I keep bringing this up on the podcast to just talk about food. Um, the last comforting thing we have left, potentially. And somehow like the hottest topic of COVID, too. Like it is. it is, it is some of the biggest like media news has centered around food journalism and the food world. It just feels like because everybody's cooking now, these these issues affect us even more like down to the media level, all of it. Yeah, I think people are remembering that they can cook a lot more than maybe they do. I think a lot more people are cooking a lot more than they have recently. Molly kind of recently went on a a search for the perfect cold soup. <laughs> I saw that. Yes. I'm not into soup, so I didn't have anything to offer you, Molly. I'm sorry. Wait, you but don't did like you find soup? One? I don't know. Especially like cold soup. I don't know. Maybe I'd rather have a popsicle. <laughs> Is it the same thing? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, gazpacho popsicle. Yes, exactly. But with no savory, only sweet. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's just a popsicle then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen any of the TikTok videos about the NYU kids who are in their dorms being delivered the sad meals because they're they're like stuck and they can't come out of their dorms? Oh, no. Yeah, it's uh, the, I kind of fixated on that way too long because I mean, 
they were getting these bags and some some of the contents were just like a cupcake and peanut butter. And then there was the one like the big meal, I guess, was a chicken and watermelon salad, which then like one of the TikTok people like accidentally dropped on the floor and they were like cleaning up the chicken and watermelon salad. And I was like, this is very evocative and horrible. Um, <laughs> but I that's kind of why I've been enjoying your newsletter so much because I feel like all I think about in my downtime is is food. Um, is there anything you've been enjoying cooking or eating during the core? Um, honestly, like getting more into salads. Cause I realized that like I, it, at my core am a child when it comes to eating and I need to remember to eat my vegetables. So I've been trying to get creative around that. And also I joined a CSA. So I get vegetables delivered to me and it's like, well, what am I going to do with these? So you have to do them. And then also <laughs> this is like so basic of me, but I have perfected my banana bread recipe. So, Which one do you use? <laughs> um, I started with the joy of cooking recipe, but I add more lemon and like, I think it calls for a banana and a half. So I do like three bananas and then also toasted hazelnuts. I decided that's Ooh. actually the key. Yeah. Ooh, I can't Ooh, that do sounds any. great. It's real to, great. <laughs> that sounds so much better than walnuts. Yeah. Yeah, it works a lot better. I guess some people don't like hazelnuts, but if you do, you got to go that route. Well, I'm allergic to walnuts, so hazelnuts sound great. Perfect. Um, we also wanted to talk a little bit about community fridges, because I know that you were kind of interested in starting one. Um, did you ever manage to get that going? Yeah. So we did. Um, two friends and I just started doing it on our own, and we're just sort of calling around cold calling establishments in our neighborhood. Um, we partnered together because we all live really close to each other. And then we found a place, um, a wine bar, um, nearby to where we live in a neighborhood called Virgil Village. Um, and they were open to doing it. And we partnered with a group and it took a while to actually make it happen. But now the refrigerator is there and exists and is feeding people. Can you explain the concept of the community fridge for people who might not be familiar with it? Yeah, it's basically just a refrigerator that's in a public space that anyone can put food in and take food out of. Oh, nice. Like a food library kind of. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of people compare it to little libraries. Yeah. That's that's awesome. So like I've read that there have been some weird kind of bureaucratic hangups with these. They started in New York, I think, um, by a group, A New World in Our Hearts. Um, I don't know if that was the first one ever, probably not, but uh, definitely kind of inspired the L.A. movement of community fridges. Um, but there was one in Compton, I think, that only lasted two weeks. Uh, I think this was an LAist report by Lillian Kalish. And um, it, it was basically like the person who installed it was named Canny Webb. And the city first started complaining that this violated property maintenance and electrical codes. because you. So when you contacted the wine bar, that was to get the electrical source for the fridge, right? And to put it on their property. So those yes. two things. Yeah. Um, I think the electricity probably, well, I have no idea, but that's like an expensive part of it, especially I think yeah. in Los Angeles, it gets a lot hotter than it does. There's like a ton of them in Oakland and I don't think they have the same heat concerns that we do. Yeah. Cause it here. must have to be constantly like super running on super high just to like combat the fact that it's outdoors in exactly. degree. And people who are more organized and have more resources have actually started building little sheds around the refrigerators, I think to cut down on how much energy needs to be used. Oh, that's smart. And you could also, if you did that, I mean, then you can start daydreaming that it would be possible to do like a full community kitchen, which would be nice as well, but exactly. probably won't happen. 
and would instantly get shut down as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Compton one, um, they said that the person who had installed it, he or she, had to install a latch, a safety latch on the outside so that it could be locked. And then once they installed the latch, then they were notified that they had violated the safety code that requires all fridges on the street to like not have doors because of something we've talked about on this podcast, which was the Punky Brewster episode that featured the being trapped in a fridge scare which I guess was a real thing. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's such a great idea. And I I know, um, I think CNN may have reported on this recently that food insecurity is, uh, for obvious reasons, just such, it's like just blowing up and so many more people are food insecure. But the city, Molly brought to my attention that like LAPD had been trying to like seize or shut down a lot of these fridges. Yeah, I saw that the Highland Park one got shut down. Um, They've, you know, were cited for violating some code or something. Uh, But I think what Catherine was saying, it's like if you get a business to host it, I believe that is more legit. But I also think they're just trying to figure out ways to shut this down because they hate when we have nice things. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't matter um, who hosts it, I don't think. And I think that really the fridges are sort of acting outside of laws and legislation. Like, I think that the ones that have been shut down, health department officials or whoever had to work really hard to find a way to shut it down. It's just like there's no legislation around these community fridges yet. But I do think that it is probably a good idea to have them off the sidewalk both so that they don't right. attract official attention. Oh, yeah. And also, I think for accessibility issues, don't don't block sidewalks. <laughs> yeah, we're very anti-scooter for that reason. <laughs> yes, agreed. I think also like an issue, and we're going to see this more and more, you know, like Hurricane Laura just came through like Texas and Louisiana, like on top of the like food security that is happening for economic reasons and for COVID reasons, like there are going to be more and more natural disaster related food insecurity situations. I was just, I'm in Iowa right now. I I went and uh, worked for a little bit at a very, very ad hoc kind of food bank um, that was being put together because a ton of people there hadn't had power for two weeks and all of their food went bad. And so like, if you already had a system set up like a, a, um, a community fridge or, you know, just a kind of mutual, like a public mutual aid type situation, then you wouldn't have to scramble to put that kind of thing together. It could be in place and like people would know what to do and where to go. Cause I think like half of it is putting it together and half of it is getting the word out so people know that they can access those resources. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it kind of reminded me the community fridges of one of the things that I now look back fondly on from the beginning of quarantine where everyone was really not going to the store and there were a lot of major shortages where um, and also when Molly lost her cat like neighbors were kind of talking to each other not to use the uh, next door motto like when neighbors talk good things happen (laughs) but like I was genuinely borrowing sugar and flour and stuff for my neighbors and the community fridge kind of seems like a natural extension of that and and kind of maybe a way to get something good out of a truly awful experience to just be able to recognize like, you know, the need and the surplus and like how those things can exist next door to each other. But I'm also curious, have you encountered anybody who's been against the fridge? Like, do you have any fridge haters? No, I wouldn't say anyone who's actively against it. It was just like a lot of the businesses that we contacted said, this is a really good idea, but we can't do it here. And I think in a lot of cases, it was like they don't want to do it there for so many reasons. Um, 
we actually have insurance. There's an organization called Fridge that like offers insurance for these public fridges. So technically that shouldn't be an issue. And when I say that, I kind of like get ignored. I think they just don't. I, I mean, and I kind of understand people getting nervous about people gathering at their business to not, you know, patronize their business. So, right. But um, yeah, no one, I don't think anyone is actively against them, but a lot of people are just kind of hesitant to get involved. That makes sense. I saw that there was one that was opening up in Eagle Rock also just as of a couple days ago. I think Molly may have seen that too. Um, but I was curious, I was like, I wonder how, you know, how quickly these are going to pop up versus how quickly they're getting dismantled. It's kind of nice to hear that it's a more complicated process to get them taken down, that it's hard to find those codes that they're violating. Um, and also that people are willing to kind of like, you know, install a latch if they're supposed to install a latch, take the latch off if they're not allowed to have it. Um, but I wonder how people, if they're interested in joining this project, can kind of get involved and like, is there a, a hub in LA? Like, is there a website that people can check out if they want to propose a community fridge in their neighborhood? Yeah. So there's a couple different ways of doing it. You can definitely just do it yourself. That is like one of the options. Um, but I do think it's probably important to think about how much work that these are going to take. Um, so joining an organization is probably great just for having other people on the cleaning schedule. And I do think a cleaning schedule is important. There's the one that I'm working with is called the People's Bodega. They actually started with kind of like a different idea. They're more about support at the marches, but they kind of pivoted to the refrigerators as well. The big one is LA Community Fridges, which I'm not involved with, but apparently like they are run like the military. And I mean that in like the good organized way. <laughs> like there's like <laughs> Slack notices that go off. There's like a public like volunteer schedule and everyone has to like report in that they've done their volunteer time and all that kind of stuff. So that one's probably for people who just want to like, don't want to do all the work of trying to find a place for a fridge because that is the annoying part of it, I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems like there is so much opportunity to kind of rethink the way that we all take care of each other as a community. And when this project started, I believe the New York, I think it started in New York and maybe it started everywhere at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> the People's Bodega started in New York, right? Yeah. I Well, I think so, actually. Like there's People's Bodega and then there's People's Bodega NYC. And I don't know if they just they're joined together now. I don't know how that started. But yeah, the community fridges are like 10 years old, like as a concept as we know it now. But definitely when they started around 10 years ago, and it was mostly in Europe, it was way more about food waste, combating food waste. And I think that like during COVID, it switched and food waste is usually written as one of the reasons for doing it. But I think it's definitely about people getting enough food. Yeah. And it, it definitely feels like it is in the tradition or inspired by the Black Panthers uh, breakfast program. Completely. Um, which was, you know, a community program to provide free breakfast for everybody in a neighborhood that sort of acknowledges, you know, food insecurity and, and other things that the government is not really dealing with. And I believe that also was, you know, they tried to find ways to criminalize that, um, even though you should be able to feed people <laughs> for free. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely has a lot of similarities. I think a lot less organized than the Black Panthers were. Like, they had a point from the start. Whereas I think when the fridges first started, both at the beginning and, and now during COVID, it was kind of ad hoc and just like, we'll try it out. 
But it is, like I said, with LA Community Fridges, it's becoming pretty organized. One of the things, um, I, it was a long time ago, Catherine, but on your Instagram, I remember um, you had a post discussing businesses that don't take cash. I will not name the restaurant. Yes. Um, it's, it's a very interesting topic for me. Wait, name the restaurant. <laughs> no, I don't want to because because people were so mean to me for and you know my point in that post was actually I wish that the journalists um, were writing about this restaurant um, in the sense of the neighborhood that it's mm. in and the fact that it doesn't accept cash. And then the people who got mad at me, I don't think are very intelligent people, but it was still really hard couple of days to be screamed at constantly. <laughs> it's weird because it, it I mean you can be kind of like, well, I understand why a business would decide to not have not accept cash and to also acknowledge the fact that that's wrong, you know, yeah. for a number of more important reasons. Yeah. I didn't think that it was weird to say that it's classist because it yeah. is classist because a lot of people don't have bank accounts and so they don't have plastic. They can only pay with cash. And right. I do think that, um, you know, everyone's becoming more socially aware and that's so good. Um, and I wonder if people who took offense at the idea of it being classist last year would maybe still feel the same way this year. Yeah. I yeah. mean, yeah, I, there's, there are a few businesses in my neighborhood that are cashless and were called out, um, on social media and the engagement was really interesting because the businesses, a lot of the businesses are pretty like socially aware and they were just like, we've been robbed too many times, like the insurance, blah, blah, blah. But it's hard because a lot of the neighborhoods that are cashless are really like, you know, the kind of weird LA awful gentrified mix of like these old residents, you know, a lot of unhoused people. And then these newcomers who are like just paying with the chip and you can feel the tension there. And it felt like the tension was kind of playing out in that conversation in an interesting way. And I think it seems as though like food journalists are also very split on the issue, at least from your post about it. But yeah, I wonder kind of how that would be tackled now. And I wonder if that's something that when you cover a restaurant that is cashless, like you should feel compelled to kind of get into that a little bit in the coverage. Yeah, I think it's an interesting data point, kind of the way that you would talk about anything else having to do with a restaurant. And actually, your point ties in perfectly because we put our fridge in the parking lot between a little grocer called Rick's Produce and a wine bar called Melody. And Melody um, is often listed as one of the gentrifiers of Virgil Village. I mean, it is in a lot of ways, but it's brought up a lot of um, conversation about what being a gentrifier means exactly and exactly who is a gentrifier. Mm -hmm. If you are a renter, can you be a gentrifier or is it actually the real estate developers and the landlords who are gentrifiers? Obviously, I just gave my own opinion away. On this. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but it is like interesting to see people's reaction like to Melody, you know, providing the electricity for for this refrigerator and being like, oh, that's cool that they're doing that versus like, oh, that's just performative. It doesn't matter. They're still horrible. Well, it seems like there's been a lot of discussion about Virgil Village specifically recently because it is this kind of corridor that was a lot of like Central American groceries and um, has been gentrifying for the past 10 years. And then, of course, there was the squirrel mold jam scandal Absolutely. yeah the anchor of the virgil village gentrification wave like got <laughs> completely disrupted <laughs> i just think it's like funny to compare to think about yeah. that in the context of these fridges it's like 
you know, the fear mongering over the fridges. It's like, oh, what if their food goes bad in there? And it's like the food is going bad in the restaurants that you're like paying for having it on toast for $20. That's such a good point. Didn't you write about this recently about like you didn't get food poisoning from where you think you got food poisoning from? Yeah, I did. How people think that they know where they got food poisoning from, but the actual, um, the time between eating something that poisons you and then actually getting sick can vary from like three hours to 28 days. Depending 28 days? On, yeah, yeah, seriously. <laughs> and it depends on like what kind of bacteria you ingested, your own personal um, immune system. There's a lot that goes into it. And yeah, because uh, people said that they never got sick from squirrel and I was like, maybe, but maybe they did. And yep. we'll never know. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, also with the LA Alfresco thing where they're putting tables and chairs on the sidewalk, it's like, well, that's also blocking the sidewalk uh, for food reasons. So why would anyone care if a fridge isn't even blocking anything? Yeah. Some people really don't like it when other people try and help each other. They sure don't. Especially the people who have all the stuff and don't need anything seemingly are the ones who don't want other people uh, having community. Well, one of the things that's strange is I've seen um, just like anecdotally that some of the people who are objecting to the fridges are just like, they're, it's like a germ vector. How can you be sure that this stuff is clean? It's like, well, then A, don't use it. But also, if you go to like Bristol Farms or Gelson's and you're paying $9 for a bag of grapes, like chances are those have fallen on the floor and just been put right back. Millions yeah. of people come by and touch them. Like the the idea that something would this be... This is the myth of grocery stores. Like yeah. that the, they're clean or like the, half of the the, the work of, of a grocery store, of like an American grocery store is to create this illusion of plentitude and cleanliness that is like not at all necessarily the case and often even if it is it results in tons and tons of food waste like like there's so so much food waste just at at, at the grocery store level um oh, let alone yeah. before you bring it into your house and then don't eat half of the stuff you get like yeah I, the the and i think people, a lot of people because they're used to they're used to patronizing a grocery store just like assume that it is like normal and good and clean and uh, efficient. Um, and grocery stores, yeah, there there are like laws against grocery stores distributing food that they have to throw out. Uh, and then there's laws against dumpstering, which, again, I feel like if you want to eat food out of a dumpster and you know the risk, uh, it should be fine. But, you know, yeah, whenever I worked at grocery stores, just like you throw so much stuff away that isn't necessarily bad. When I was in high school, I worked for a bakery that um, gave everything away at the end of the day that hadn't been sold. They just did it every day. Some guy came to the back door and we just handed him whatever hadn't been sold. And I wonder, it was in LA, so maybe like the regulations were more liberal um, where this was. But I also kind of feel like sometimes, honestly, it's best to just do a thing. And if you're told five years later, oh, actually, there's regulations against that, you can be like, oh, I'll stop. But why wouldn't you just give food away or put a fridge in somewhere? And because like I was saying, the refrigerators aren't illegal. They just aren't addressed yet by laws. Right. So do it. <laughs> right. And it's like like Silicon Valley's whole business model is like finding a loophole of something that's not illegal yet and doing it. And their model is obviously very exploitative and based on exploiting workers. But it's like 
finding things that aren't illegal that just are helpful and good, and then they try to criminalize it, seems insane. It does. <laughs> um, I was going to ask you, Catherine, also, because um, we, we've we talked, I think, on the podcast about LA Weekly and how it's changed and everything, but do you have any... Um, like favorite kind of places that have that have taken that over doing like really good food reporting on a local level and do you have any recommendations where people can look into that stuff besides smart mouth <laughs> no um yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> you have, yeah you have to kind of search them out but there are a lot of food writers doing newsletters like i am too so if you just start following food people on twitter you'll quickly find out who all is doing the newsletters there's also um there are people doing, I think when Instagram first started and like food Instagramming, like we all know what the stereotype of it is, but there are people like writing longer captions and doing more thoughtful work. Um, there's like LA Taco obviously covers Love a lot LA of places. Taco. Yeah. That wouldn't be covered necessarily by the LA Times, etc. There's another one. Um, I feel like I'm getting the name wrong. I think it's called We Like LA. Is that what Julia no, that edits? Is, okay, I think, yeah. yeah. I think We Like LA is definitely, I yeah. I always wonder because I know I've been, I follow like all of the social media accounts of like my my local like little restaurants and I get s- super stressed. I think Casita Del Campo maybe was recently like featured in some kind of thing where they talked about how, how business had suffered and they were worried about closing. Um, and so I, I'm curious how we can kind of like prop up our favorite teeny tiny little restaurants and stuff like that um, right now. Because it seems as though for a long time, for for the first few months of the quarantine and everything, it seemed as though there was a lot more hope that, you know, there'd be more assistance um, to the small restaurants and small businesses. And now you can just kind of feel the shift in the outlook. uh, And it's so awful. Um, So if you have any favorite LA places that you're concerned about that you want people to check out that are good, let's hear them. Well, let's see. What restaurants do I like? I like um, Love to Eat, which is Thai in Hollywood. Um, Ruen Pear. I love Love to Eat. Oh, my God. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. What do you get there? Everything. I'm not kidding. Like, just like go nuts. The menu is huge. Like, take two months and go through the whole menu. (laughs) And try absolutely everything. Um, another one in Thai Town called Ruen Pear, which is really good. Um, I love Desano Pizza, but I know that they have at least one other location, I think, in Canada. So I don't know if it counts as a small business. I'll count it. They <laughs> okay. were, yeah, there. That was like the after-school pizza place um, last two years ago for for my family. That's like a really good after-school pizza place. That's because they also pizza have gelato. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> It's like a really it was a, good pizza It was place. a quick walk was the only reason. And then I was like, this is great. Yeah. I think that everybody should, um, if you have social media, you might as well like advertise like your favorite restaurants too. Like even if you're not like a food person, put it in your Instagram stories or whatever. Just say it. But I also, I'm sure I know not everyone who loves food agrees with me, but I do feel like it's really important to not dine in. Yes. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I think workers are in a really difficult position because obviously we all know they need money, um, but the government's not going to give it to them. So they have to keep working and having spoken at length with a lot of restaurant workers, they don't actually want to be there. Like, it's scary. So just order takeout. (laughs) No, totally. And tip generously. Yeah, like the al fresco thing where it was like, well, we're going to let restaurants reopen in this limited fashion where we let them have outdoor seating. Just the whole thing, uh, but forcing them to reopen. It's like somebody was talking about this yesterday. They were like, I, 
is this an open and shut case? Like, should restaurants be open or closed? And it's like, well, they should be closed and the government should be paying them to stay closed and be paying the workers and bailing out small businesses the way they bailed out like cruise ships and airlines and stuff like that. Exactly. And I have heard some people say they're worried that only ordering takeout will mean that people will lose their jobs. But I don't think that's true if for no other reason that every restaurant worker I've talked to says that their job responsibilities have shifted. Like everyone's just moving is doing slightly different stuff as needed now. And I feel like when you when you pick up food in person, you can tip. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I've been going to um, just because it was nearby and they were doing bags of produce that were me sized as a solo quarantiner uh, I didn't have to get like a big CSA box but Lil Dom's was doing like an, a nice small um, produce bag and so I was kind of going there regularly because I would get that and then I would like you know maybe get some eggs for more than I would normally pay for eggs but I was like you know I'm doing this instead of going to the grocery store so and I'm not eating like my entire eating out budget is like freed up now so um, I can do this and then like after a while I got some note in my bag that was like hey you know we've been doing this thing for a while we, we were able to hire back like I don't remember it was like five to ten of their employees that they had put on furlough or something and so it's like yeah this, this stuff it, it does make a difference and like you know choosing where to to spend your money and where to you know to invest in the neighborhood businesses that you like it can make a big difference I think yeah Karina Longworth friend friend of Night Call had a good post the other day too where she was like um, I'm worried about the small places. You know, she was like, everybody knows that like places like John and Vinny's or whatever will like get bailed out and, you know, have investors no matter what. But, you know, she was talking specifically about like small Italian red sauce places that, you know, have been here since the 50s that, you know, are part of what makes LA great um, and a great place to live. And I was saying like Thai town, you know, yeah. is... You mentioned a couple of places in Thai Town, but like Thai Town has, you know, some of the best food in LA and is a place I'm always worried about gentrifying because it's right next to Hollywood and, you know, it's a relatively recent um, enclave. So I definitely encourage everybody to support, like, especially, you know, ethnic enclave neighborhoods. Uh, especially uh, Asian restaurants, I believe, had a lost business when COVID first started because of racism. So, you know, support places in the San Gabriel Valley, support Koreatown. Yeah, because Din Tai Fung in Arcadia closed. Well, Din Tai Fung is an international chain. No, I know, but I was shocked. I was like, the fact that this is affecting Din Tai Fung of all places is really unexpected to me. I think one thing that like, I feel like I truly know nothing about is what to assume is more at risk restaurant-wise because it, a lot of times it feels like it's not the places you would expect. Like when I heard the thing about Din Tai Fung, I was actually, I was quite shocked. And you would think, oh, it has this whole, you know, international business around it. Like, you know, they could, you know, hopefully buffer it from that kind of thing. And I do think that like, you know, not that I'm most worried about them, but I do think that like right. the John and Vinny's of the world aren't necessarily, they don't have the biggest um, uh, margins. Like I, I don't think that those places are necessarily, like a lot of those sort of fancy trendy places in LA that I don't even go to normally um, have shut down just because they're not really working with that much of a, a margin there. That's true. I, I think it then becomes just, you know, 
if they go away, can they come back versus the smaller places? But I mean, it is, it's surprising what survives and what doesn't. Um, I was always dunking on this one restaurant, but I continued to go that's in Los Feliz that I found, uh, I, I liked their food, but I found it very overpriced and I took strong offense to their decor. (laughs) Um, I know which restaurant have mentioned this, this podcast. Oh, like, I know which. Oh, okay. You know. We know, we know what one you're talking about. They, they're, they're the ones who are down to clown. Does everybody, does everybody have one restaurant they'd like to recommend for people to get takeout from? Well, but wait, can, before we say that, let me just say that they've, they've done such a good job of taking care of their workers um, since they've been takeout only. They're really strict about having everyone wear a mask and their takeout is like, they have really high standards for the takeout. They obviously really care about food. So I'm just going to go on the record and say, even though I never named them and I'm not naming them now, that I forgive them <laughs> and I support them. <laughs> um, and it, it was nice because... We'll call it, we'll call it Los Feliz TGI Fridays for, yes, for yes. ENCODE. <laughs> Flair. <laughs> nice. But yeah, let's... Favorite places to get takeout, I'd love to hear about as well. But I just had to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I misjudged them. They had a lot of tchotchkes and I just didn't like it. But now I don't have to look at the tchotchkes. <laughs> I want to plug Zen May in Chinatown which is my favorite, uh, like, American-Chinese place in Chinatown. Uh, really good. Just everything. Check it out. Yeah. I I would echo the Love to Eat uh, recommendation from Catherine. That has been my a, a go-to a lot just because I'll usually order, like, two dinners so I can have something later on. Um, and the crab fried rice is, like, a big go-to there. That is... Uh, um, a lot of food <laughs> and it's delicious. I, I love I love a crab fried rice in general and they do it very, very well there. Um, and there's a whole um, also I, I learned in, in, in ordering takeout from them because I hadn't done that before. There's a whole um, like uh, app that is specifically for a lot of the Thai restaurants in LA. And I don't really know what the deal with it is, but it seems like they figured out like a lot of these restaurants team together to, to have a different platform to work on. That's not like seamless or DoorDash or whatever, which, you know, I, I, I was happy to learn about. I hope that it, it is better for their employees and stuff to, to use that, um, to that, use that alternate app. But that was cool. Nice. Catherine, do you have any favorite takeout spots to plug besides the ones that you've listed? Anyone you're you're worried about and you want to throw them a ton of support? <laughs> I'm worried about all of them. I feel like I can't even narrow Like, my brain is filled with so many names right now. I think I'm going to take a slightly different tack and kind of to Emily's point, call the restaurant, any restaurant you're ordering delivery or takeout from, call them directly first and see if they'll do delivery yes. directly. They won't always do it, but just see if they will. Because if they do, they get more money off of your order and if they don't, if enough people call them and ask them, maybe they will start doing their own delivery. So. Yeah. And if you can go pick it up in person, then you don't have to screw over a DoorDash or seamless person who we all know are getting super exploited and underpaid during this time. If you can go in in person and leave a tip in a tip jar, that's probably ideal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
I think that's it. So, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you on social media? Oh, um, let's see on Instagram at Smartmouth Podcast and my personal one at Catherine underscore Spires. And then on Twitter at Catherine Spires. I never use the podcast one. And yeah, the podcast is called Smartmouth, which is two words. And um, the newsletter is at smartmouth.substack.com. Thanks for listening to Night Call. We will be back next week. And as always, leave us a night call at 24046night or a night email at nightcallpodcast at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. And we'll see you again soon. You can also find us on social media. We are Nightcall Pod on Twitter, Nightcall Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and review and don't forget to subscribe. Thanks. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from Brain MD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two caps a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200k for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com.